I want to, I want to get into the Word tonight, and I'm going to tell you right up front, this is not a sermon that is, that is what I call a designer sermon. It's, it's not a sermon that's designed to achieve any effect. And I don't, I, I, a long time ago, I quit preaching sermons like that. When you, when you see preachers, I'm just going to tell you this. When you see preachers in the pulpit and they start doing this, and God, ah, ah, and, and that's preaching for effect. I quit doing that a long time ago. I let the Word of God do its own profound thing in our lives. I really want you to pay attention to this message tonight because this Word is very, very important. Everything that we preach from the Word of God, if it's biblically derivated and correctly balanced, it is important, but this is particularly important. I hate to oversell it here at the beginning, but as we get into this, you'll see what I mean, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some context for this. And my nose looks red because I got sunburnt on my fishing trip trying to film for the show. I did catch a six-and-a-half-pound bass, so not bad. Yeah, I got it on film, too. All right. I had a conversation with someone in Arkansas. Let me put a little context on this. And this person, this individual is very sick, and they have, they have a very serious disease and illness. And it's causing them a great deal of pain intermittently. And so they asked for, for me to come and see them. And so I took time out of my normal schedule to go and sit with them at their bedside and they said I only have one question to ask you and I know you you've got you don't have a lot of time because you're trying to film and you, you're doing things and actually this particular day I was getting ready to drive make the drive back to Georgia and they said I just have one question pastor and I said okay and they said as you know I'm very sick and I'm in a lot of pain sometimes and many times, I'll have someone that I know is a child of God. I know they love Jesus. I'll ask, I'll ask them to come and pray with me. And they will. They'll come, they'll lay hands on me, and they'll pray with me. And I know they're people of God. I know they have faith. I know they believe God. And then nothing happens. The pain doesn't stop. And then I'll have other people come and pray. And nothing will happen, and the pain doesn't stop. And they said, and it makes, to be honest with you, and this, this is a seasoned Christian. They've been to Bible college. They're not some three-year-old child of God. They're, they're seasoned. They're mature. And so they said, it makes me question my faith, Pastor. It makes me wonder that if God's not going to heal my pain, is he not, not going to heal my disease? And I'm, I'm believing. I'm hanging on. I'm trusting God to heal me, but why doesn't, why doesn't God heal me? It took her about 15 minutes to ask the question, and it took me about an hour to answer it. Now listen to me, saints of God. Pastors don't like to preach sermons like this because they're not exciting. Pastors like to excite people. I prefer to build people. I'm not, I'm not opposed to being excited, but I want to grow you to the place that you can face life from a godly perspective and whatever comes, you're prepared for that. I'd much rather have you mature than happy. I'd much rather have you uh, seasoned and grown up in Christ than temporarily excited by something sensational. This message tonight, if you will hear it the right way, and if you will file it, this may not be something you need tonight. Hopefully it's not. 
But you will either meet someone or you'll go through your own life, I promise you, a time when this message will save you. I'm going to distill down into four points, basically, what I responded to this person. It took me an hour to say. I can't get all the details in that I said to this person. But I want to put it into a distilled form for you tonight. And I'm going to take my, my text from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing. This is either his second or probably his third letter to the church at Corinth. Somehow the second letter was probably lost, misplaced. I think we historians agree that Paul probably wrote three letters. And if you wonder what all this New Testament really is that Paul wrote, Paul basically wrote a series of letters to churches and sent them to the church. And the church was not a building like this. The church was a group of people who met in homes. And the church at Corinth might meet in 12 or 13 people's houses. And this group of people in this part of town would have some Christians over and they'd meet in their house. And the people over there, it's like a bunch of small groups, basically, house Bible studies that met and they, they comprised the church at Corinth. It wasn't like a building and, a, and worships. It wasn't like we do church here. So what would happen is one church in one home would read Paul's letter and then they'd send a courier and they'd take it to the next church and the next church would read Paul's letter to the whole congregation. And Paul was able to be an apostle over several churches in this way. So I want to start reading at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and i want to start reading to you at verse the b portion of verse 7 in order to keep me from becoming conceited i was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of satan to torment me now let me encourage you about something there's been a lot of controversy over the years as to what this thorn in paul's flesh was i have a word for you about it it does not matter don't spend any intellectual uh currency trying to decide what paul's thorn in the flesh was it doesn't matter what it was and that's true it really doesn't matter i have an idea what my opinion is but that doesn't matter either and it's it's neither here nor there so we're not going to get into a dissertation on what that thorn was now listen to this verse three times i pleaded with the lord to take it away from me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness it's tough to look at somebody who has a terminal illness and with tears in their eyes and little rivulets of water running down their face, them ask you, why when, when somebody prays, does my pain not go away? Why is my disease not healed? Here's what the Bible says. Here's what I thought it meant. Here's, here are these verses I'm standing on, and yet this disease is not abated. I'm not healed. I'm still in pain. God could heal me with a thought. Why doesn't he, Pastor? I'm going to tell you that's tough. And what's What's equally difficult is knowing the level of respect that this person has for me. I know that what I'm going to say to this person, they're going to believe it, and it's going to, it's going to impact and affect them for years to come. 
In the same way, be careful what you say and to whom you say it, because your words are going to impact people far more profoundly than you realize for years to come. Also, be sure that your words and your conduct align themselves to support one another. When they don't, that's called hypocrisy. And it will destroy your witness faster than anything else. Tonight, how faith works when it seems God is silent. How faith works when it seems God is silent. Number one, the Bible must be understood in balance and wholeness. I would really encourage you to to take notes on this and really pay attention. I wish there were 5,000 people here to hear this because it is so necessary for these times when you pray and it seems like nothing happens. The Bible must be understood in balance and wholeness. What that means as it is germane to a scenario where you're praying, let's just take healing, and it seems that healing doesn't come. The Bible says, what does the Bible say about healing? The Bible says, if there be any sick among you, let them do what? Call for the elders of the church, anoint with oil, pray the prayer of faith, and what will happen? The sick person will be made well, right? Jesus said, what is possible to him who believes? Everything. Everything is possible to him who believes. Jesus said in John, if you will ask anything in my name, what? I will do it. So when somebody prays and healing doesn't happen, what do we do with that? The Bible must be understood in balance and wholeness. Now listen to me, this is important. It is critical for us as Christians not to take a pre-selected bracket of hand-cherry-picked scriptures and use them to define God in His fullness. God is defined by the fullness of His Word, not cherry-picked pieces of it that we like. The same Bible that says, the same Bible that says, if there be any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, let them anoint with oil, let them pray the prayer of faith, and the sick person shall be made well. The same Bible that says that also says, it is appointed unto man once to do what? Die. There is a sickness unto death. If anybody knew about faith, it was Abraham. But Abraham died. If God answered every prayer that we prayed every time, without exception for healing, there would be saints of God walking around here three, four, five, and 6,000 years old. There would. My father would still be alive. My grandfather would still be alive. Elijah, Moses, Abraham, they'd all be alive. But there are miracles, Pastor. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Yes, he did. After four days of death, Jesus spoke and raised him from the dead. But at some point, Lazarus died. And he didn't come back that time. Now, these are not scriptures and thoughts and and principles that are designed or, or chosen to make us shout and make us happy and make us feel a certain way. These principles are to equip you for the times when you're looking at somebody laying in a hospital bed dying. And you have to tell them something that's real and true that they can hang on to. Not spiritual fluff and nonsense, but truth. 
And the truth is, the Bible's got to be understood in its wholeness. The same Bible that says that if we, if we believe, we can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it'll be done. The same Bible that says that tells us there's a sickness unto death. It is appointed unto man wants to die. The, the passage I read about Elisha a couple of weeks ago in the pulpit starts by saying, now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. King David had, a, had an affair with Bathsheba. Uh, she got pregnant, as you know. He killed her husband. One of the most heinous crimes and, and conduct issues in the entire Bible. Breaks my heart to even think about it. And the child was smitten and struck by God. And David fasted and prayed and put on sackcloth and ashes and begged God to let that baby live. And it died. I, I had to come to grips with this early on in the ministry. When I was a youth pastor down in Columbus, Georgia, hadn't been in the ministry full-time very long. I'd been in the ministry, but not full-time. A couple in our church, the girl, a married couple, the girl got pregnant, the wife got pregnant. Beautiful young couple, loved God, served in the church. And the baby was born like three months premature, just a long time, maybe Maybe it was five or six weeks. I can't remember, but it was a long time. And the little thing, it was like this big, you know, two or three pounds. And, of course, they put it in the incubator and had tubes and monitors all over it. And I just, it just broke my heart. And I decided, all right, this is my mission. I am going to pray this baby through and make sure that it lives. If nobody else is going to pray, I'm going to pray this baby to life. So I set myself to fasting. I did not taste food for like three weeks. I did not do anything hardly with any of my spare time except pray. I mean, I prayed. I dedicated myself to praying for that little baby. I knew. I mean, I was sure. I stand in the church and just shout proclamations of faith over that little baby. I knew that baby was going to live. And that little baby died. And I had to come to grips with this early on it is important for us not to define god by our own preferences not to define god by a set of scriptures that we handpick and place and say okay these are the hoops i'm setting up for you and you god of all creation supreme creator redeemer and holy almighty god you've got to jump through these hoops you've got to be this god and if you don't then i'm going to question you how do I say this to us, but to say it honestly, our, our faith, our level of trust, our understanding of the nature of God has just got to be bigger than that. It's got to be more mature than that. That's easy for me to say in this setting. It's difficult for you to hear when your loved one is lying in the hospital bed and the doctors say they're not going to make it 24 more hours. Not in, in, in 2012... My father went to sleep one night. I mean, he was just my best friend, my hero, my mentor. I'm who I am today, largely because of his influence in my life. And he went to bed one night. He woke up the next morning. He was laying on the floor beside the bed, making guttural sounds. He never recovered from whatever happened to him. Nine days later, he was gone. Several years before that, and I have seen many, many people die in my lifetime because of ministry and outside the ministry you see people die you see their eyes glaze over you hear them take their last breath and then they're still 
I've never seen anybody come as close to dying as my father did and not die. He was as gray as Michael Royer's sweatshirt. He, was, he looked like an alien. He was laying in the bed in a fetal position, and he was, he was doing that death rattle, that deep rattling breathing, and he was just in constant convulsions. I've never seen anything like it. I walked over to the doctor, found the doctor. I said, what? I had heard about this, and I flew there on a private airplane, and I asked the doctor, I said, what is wrong with my father? He said, your father has systemic sepsis. It's in his blood. It's all over his body. He just can't live. There's about a 90% chance he won't live till the morning. His temperature right now is over 105. He's out of his mind. Even if he does recover, he may have permanent brain damage. I said, okay, I appreciate that encouraging report, you know. <laughs> I walked over to the side of the bed, and my daddy's sitting there like a, like a dying creature. I've never seen anything like it. I reached over and put my hand on his head. I promise, I think you could have cooked an egg on his forehead. I didn't scream or shout or splash oil anywhere. I didn't pray for an hour. But for about five minutes, I just prayed. And I kid you not, as God is my judge, I felt that fever break under my hand. He popped out in a cold sweat. He stopped shaking. He stopped breathing like he was getting ready to crawl in the grave. And he turned just as pink as a newborn baby. I take my hand away. I'm thinking, wow, that was fast. A few hours later, the doctor comes in and says, is he? He's alive. He's alive. I said, I know he's alive. He said, I thought he'd be dead by now. It was like three hours later. I said, I thought he'd be dead by now. I mean, Daddy's sitting up in bed. He's talking. He said, what happened? I said, I just prayed for him. He looked at me and said, pray for me. <laughs> he said, this is, this is the greatest miracle I've ever seen. He said, your dad had one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel. This is a miracle. I, I, I would have bet you my house. He'd have never made it till morning. I said, he might not have, but God healed him. I didn't heal him. I'm not a faith healer. God healed him. He said, I, I'm not a religious man, but I'm going to tell you what, this is a miracle. And so he called a bunch of people in. They went, and we all celebrated. The next morning, my dad went home, normal as I am right now, healthy as a horse. Why didn't God heal my daddy in 2012? This, this April, my father will, will have been dead five years. I just can't hardly believe it. I just can't believe it. These questions haunt us. These issues bother us. We don't understand why good people. Why did, my, why did my sister die at 55? A lot of questions we don't have answers to. But we've, we've got to take the first step, and that is that the Bible's got to be understood in balance and wholeness. We've got to understand the whole counsel of God. That's why it's important to read the Word. You can only understand the nature of God through the lens of the Bible verses you've studied. If you haven't studied the whole counsel of God, you can't understand the whole personality of God. So, get into the Word. Read who God is. The Bible is not a book about God. It is a written revelation of God to us. I know many of you here have have had loved ones in your life slip off into eternity far before they should have. And if we're not careful in the back of our minds, that will plant a seedling of nagging doubt, 
I urge you to go back to the Word of God. Understand this about God. He loves us, and this is, this is key to all this. God's not playing a shell game with us, with His mood swings. Understand this from the get-go. God has already proven that He loves us because He sent His own Son to die for us. Remember that when you're looking at somebody in a casket or you're looking at somebody on the side of the road bleeding to death or you're looking at somebody with a gun to their head or whatever it might be. Remember, God has already demonstrated His love toward us. Let that be settled in your heart. If you love Jesus and you believe in God, you got a home in heaven. That's huge. So understand God through the lens of a complete comprehension of the whole Word of God, number one. Number two, we've got to learn to see life through an eternal perspective. We, we get used to living in this world. We get used to, to processing life through five senses. We grow accustomed to linear time, to sensual surroundings. And I don't mean sexual, I mean just sensory surroundings we we've gotten accustomed to the flesh to the body in which we live to the world and in which we were born i mean think of how strange it would be if you got abducted by extraterrestrial aliens tonight and deposited on another planet somewhere i'm not saying they exist but if they did and they could grab one of us how weird would you feel if you woke up in the morning surrounded by little green people and on a different world we're accustomed to this world most of us haven't even seen all of it but we're accustomed to it. I want you to think for a minute. I saw a pack of old-fashioned, double-edged razor blades today at the grocery store. I hadn't seen a pack of them in a long time. Let's do, a, let's do a thing. Imagine this whole front wall of the church is filled with those razor blades, and they're sharp edge out, and they're jammed together just as tight as we can get them, starting up at the front all the way across. This whole wall is full of razor blades. As many as we can pack up there together like this, side by side, all the way down, all the way up, full, the whole wall. And the first one at the top left corner represents a million years of time. And each razor blade represents a million years of time. Think of how long it'll be when we've lived all those razor blades just in the first row. And then there's a row under that, and another row, and another row, and another row. Think of how much time just on that one wall. And then there's these walls. And then the whole world is full of razor blades. And then our solar system is full of razor blades. Millions of years. That's what eternity is going to be like. And our lives down here, get this now, our lives on this earth are basically the first hundred year slice of the first razor blade. And that's it. The rest of that time we spend in the presence of God. So the fact that my father has been dead for five years this April, as far as my linear time and this earthly existence, that seems like a long time to me. But when you stack, the, stack that up against all those razor blades and all those billions of centuries, it's not even a, a floating fog or a wisp or a vapor. It's gone. When we look at our lives, when we look at people who are sick, when we look at things that have happened... We're we are so controlled and dictated to by this world, this realm, this flesh that we live in. Remember the eternal perspective. Our lives down here, the Bible says they're a mist on the water. Here in the morning, gone in the afternoon. The Bible says that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. 
We've got to be able to develop that eternal perspective. And whatever happens in this life, listen to me now, whatever happens in this life, it's going to be over in the next 50, 60, 70 years, no matter who you are in here. It's going to be done for. After that, that's when everything really starts. That's when eternity starts moving and time is no more. So while we process these events, and I'm not saying these things to minimize anybody's what you've gone through, your experience, your, your dynamic for your own personal life. I'm telling you what I've gone through myself. My sister died at 55. My father died at 78. Both of them should have been able to live a whole lot longer than that. I've seen people die of every age you can imagine. And there's no rhyme or reason to some of it. But if we will keep the eternal perspective. Let me ask you this. When you consider all the billions and billions of years the razor blades on this wall represent, what difference is there between a little more of the first hundred-year slice and a little less? You see what I'm saying? What difference is there between 55 and 85, 30 years? Down here to us in this world, in this realm, with these senses, it's 30 years. Seems like forever. But when you compare it to the eternity we're going to enjoy together, it's not even a flicker of time try to remember that when you're going through difficult places in your life now let me rephrase that don't try remember that because i'm telling you it will salve your wounds understanding that we are not humans having a spiritual experience we are spirit beings having a human experience and it is temporary and it is quick, and it is fleeting, and it is over. And then we step out of the corporeal realm into the realm of eternity, and that's where living begins. And that's why it's so important to matter. Listen, it doesn't matter what anybody else you know thinks, says, or does. Make sure that the first hundred-year slice of that first razor blade that you're living called your life now, you live it for God. Because the Bible says hell enlarges itself every day. The Bible says wide is the gate, and broad is the path that leads to destruction. But narrow is the path and straight is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. Everybody talks about how billions and billions of people are going to be in heaven and all this stuff. And there may be, but I'm going to tell you, everybody who's ever lived on this earth and makes it to heaven is going to fit into one city, 1,400 miles cubed. Think about that. With mansions in there. Everybody who's going to heaven is going to fit inside that city. And it may not even be a cube, it may be a pyramid, we don't know. Four sides, 1,400 miles, long, wide, and high. Every Christian who's ever lived is going to have a mansion inside that cube or that pyramid. Think about that. Make sure you're one of them. It doesn't matter what anybody else does, make sure you're one of them. So number one, the Bible must be understood in balance and wholeness. Number two, we've got to see life through an eternal perspective. Understand that the workings of God are far beyond our own. Understand that what God is, is doing in the terms of our living and our dying, the things we go through, the death of our loved ones, acute illness, sudden accidental death, long chronic suffering and pain. Look, we, we just don't have answers for all these things. We do not understand how these things lever and work and engineer themselves together. The gears of this thing don't mesh in our minds all the time. 
Let me put you at peace with that. They don't have to. God is the one who's calling those shots. We're not. Now listen, this is important. It is critically necessary for us to come to grips with that to the point that we are at peace with it. Let God be God. Let God be God. Easy to say, a little tougher to do. Number three, our faith in God must be grounded in loving relationship, not desired outcomes. Now, this is very, very important. Our relationship with God must be governed by loving relationship. Our faith in God has got to be grounded in loving relationship, not desired outcomes. This person who was sick in Arkansas and was talking to me, they had a desired outcome. They wanted to have no more pain and to be healed instantly. And the Bible promises that God can and many times will do those things. But he does not always. Jesus only raised three people from the dead in his public ministry that is recorded in Scripture. And yet hundreds, possibly tens of thousands of people in in Israel and Palestine, the surrounding countryside, died while he was here. But he did not raise all of them from the dead. He did not heal all the sick he encountered. I'll give you an example. At the Pool of Bethesda, which they just discovered, by the way, archaeologists just dug up the Pool of Bethesda that was troubled by the angel, and the people would go down into it and get healed. The Bible says that the Pool of Bethesda was surrounded by sick people. They surrounded it. And when an angel would come down and trouble the waters, what the legend said, the first one into the water got healed. Why did Jesus, with all those sick people, why did Jesus go to one man and say, Arise and walk? Why didn't he heal everybody? Why didn't he heal two or eight? Why did he just heal one? I'll tell you the answer. We don't know. And any preacher that tells you he does will try to sell you land underwater because he doesn't know. But it's important for us to get to the place where our faith in God is not some formula and at the end of it there's an equals and this is the desired total sum of the equation. It's just not like that. Our relationship with God, our faith in God, our walk with God is much like a walk with an earthly father. It's, it's a relational thing. It's, when I was a boy, I, I always wanted to go and hang out with my friends. And many times, and I remember at six, seven, eight years old, I'd ask my dad, Dad, can I go spend the night at Richard's house? And about 98.5% of the time, Dad would go, no, son, you can't go stay at Richard's house. And it always vexed me because I didn't understand. What's the big deal? But see, at eight years of age, I didn't understand what heroin was. The word meant nothing to me, and Daddy didn't want me to understand it. I didn't understand what pornography was, and Daddy didn't want to introduce me to that. It was beyond my ability. But Daddy might have known something about Richard's dad or Richard's older brother that I didn't have any idea even existed in the world, and Dad was protecting me from potentially very harmful things that I didn't need to know about until much later in my life. 
I didn't have a choice but to submit to my father's authority. What I didn't understand was his wisdom. Now I do. When I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me, 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. We've got to come to the place where our relationship with God is not qualified in our minds by prayer, answer, yes, no, wait, end of story. It's got to be something alive, pulsating, growing, moving forward. He walks with us. I hate to use the words of an old hymn, but he walks with us and he talks with us and he tells us he's on. He, he listens to our, our dreams. and he, he wants to know about our fears. He wants to understand where we are. It's not some set of religious dogma that, that enables us to serve God. God... God built the Garden of Eden and, and created Adam and Eve and put them in it. Not that simply, not, that in, not in that order, but necessarily, but he did that. And then what did he, he do? He went down in the cool of the day, and he did not have a church service. He didn't demand that they pluck fruit and put it at his feet and say some words in a poetic way. He didn't talk to them in King James English. They didn't have praise and worship. There was no PA system, lights, or microphones. He just went down to the Garden of Eden, and he just hung out with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. You know what? That's what God still wants of us right now. We're so sure we've got this thing figured out. This is what God wants, church. This is just a forum to point people to what God wants. What God really wants is a day-to-day relational walk. Listen, with all of your flaws with all of your humanities, with all of the things in your life that you think God would never want to know about. He already knows about every one of them, and He wants to be with you every single day. Why? He's not spying on you. He already knows it. He doesn't have an agenda because He knows our limitations. So why? I'll tell you why. Because He loves you. God is madly in love with us. He just wants to commune. He just wants to be with us. He created us as his own children. He just wants to hang out. Wouldn't you get vexed if your kids came over to visit you and it's like, what do you want to do, Dad? Just hang out. Okay, thank you for being my dad. Thank you for this and this. Thank you for Christmas last year. Can I read you a poem? Can I sing a song for you? Oh, Dad, I love you. It's like, just relax. Just chill. Just hang out. You want to watch a show? Turn on Netflix. What's happening? I know none of you think that God watches Netflix, but I can assure you he does. If you watch it, he watches it. Might want you to give some thought to what you watch. (laughs) But God wants relationship with us. God wants intimacy with us. God wants to know us, and he wants, wants above all this for us to know him and to grow in his likeness. Our faith in God can't be ground, has to be grounded in loving relationship, not outcomes. God, if you don't do this, then, then what? I say this to you in love. What are you going to do if God doesn't jump through your hoop? What are you going to do if God doesn't meet your ultimatum? 
What are you going to do if God has hurt your feelings by not answering some prayer you prayed and somebody you love died? What are you going to do, huh? What am I going to do because my daddy's in the ground in South Carolina, my sister's in the ground in Manning? What am I going to do with that? Am I going to get mad at God? Is there a future in that? Is there some recourse I have? Am I justified in shaking my fist at God and railing at Him as to why you didn't heal my father, one of the greatest men I think that's ever walked on this earth? Why, why did you let him die? Is, is there some way, in some sense, that I could be justified in, in a slow burn and resistance to God? Is there any rightness in that thought? Where does that road end? You must always ask yourself, on the road I'm traveling, where does it take me? There's a great flaw in leadership teaching. This has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But I'm going to give it to you. You remember this. Great flaw in leadership teaching right now. If somebody dropped us all out of an airplane in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness, and I said to you, all right, guys, I'm going to lead you. What would your next question be? Where? There is a philosophy in leadership that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. That is not true. All leadership is directional. You are leading people somewhere. If that somewhere is not a good destination, you are not a good leader. Make sure your destination is right or everything else you do is flawed. You cannot get on a road of woundedness. Listen to me. You cannot get on a highway of a hurt. You cannot get on a, on a pathway of shaking your fist at God, not literally, but in your heart and your mind, questioning God's judgment, doubting His love, wondering if He's willing or able or whatever. We, we cannot go down a road like that and end up at a viable destination of spiritual acuity. It will not occur. Our relationship with God has to be deeper. It has to be more mature. It has to be more personal. It has to be more full and textured than just a simple demand that you must answer my prayer. Why? Because you're God and you can and I want it. The trust regarding things we can't possibly understand at this stage of our own growth and development has to be there. The trust in God that He loves us because already His Son has died for our sins. The understanding that all of God's motive toward us, listen to this, all of God's motives toward us are seasoned and bathed in the oil of love. God has no other motive toward us than love. Even when He takes us down the road of hard discipline, it is because He loves us. Make no mistake about it. The only thing God ever does in our lives is love us, Grow us, teach us every single thing for our good, every time. Our faith in God must be grounded in loving relationship, not desired outcomes. God answers in three ways, yes, no, and wait. But beyond that are reasons, dynamics, principles, and engineerings for our own best interests that are beyond our finding out. And we may never know the answers to some of these things until we're on the other side. Here's the kicker. We must grow to a place in God where we are content with that. These are difficult things I'm saying to you tonight. 
These are hard truths to live out in your life. And they, they become focused and necessary at the most difficult moments of our lives. That's why it's so pressing and urgent and important that we grasp them now and we let them work themselves down into the fabric of our soul so that when the days come, we will trust our God. Number four, we'll close with this. We should always pray and believe. None of these things I've said to you are in any way intended to mitigate or ameliorate the necessity of us to pray and believe. We should always pray and believe. Then we have to trust God to be God. Our job is never to figure out what God might do or is going to do and then pray that way. No, 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 no. The Bible never says to do that. The Bible only tells us to pray in one way. Pray the prayer of faith with no doubt. Somebody's sick, you only respond to that in one way. You don't go over there and say, Father, if it's your will, heal them. You don't pray that way. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray that way. The Bible says pray the prayer of faith that they would be healed. God's going to decide what his will is. Our job is to pray the prayer of faith and to believe with no doubt. What if, at eight years of age, I decided I'm going to ask my dad to let me go home with Richard and spend the weekend at Richard's house? And I believe with all my heart my dad's going to let me do that. I just believe it. My dad loves me, so he's going to let me do what I want to do. We're laughing at that. But when we're 52 and we're saying, I'm just going to pray that my God is going to heal my daughter, and I know because he loves me, he will. It is exactly the same thing. It is exactly the same thing. At eight years of age, I could not conceive of a reason why my dad would say no to me go hanging out with Richard. I hang out with Richard every day at school. Why wouldn't I want to go to Richard's house and spend the night and have fun? But dad knew things I did not know. And that qualified him uniquely to make a decision of which I was incapable of understanding or making. I'm going to believe my dad's going to let me go to Richard's house. I believe it. No doubt. Dad's going to let me go. Yep, yep, I'm, I believe it. It's mine. Yes, yes, I claim it. Hallelujah. I'm not going to eat anything until Daddy gets home from work. He's going to let me go. Daddy gets home from work. I say, hey, Daddy, he happens to know Richard's mom and dad had a terrible argument last night. It's not good at Richard's house. Dad, can I go spend the night? Don't even ask, son. No. Now, I've got some choices to make. Do I get mad at my father? Because I think, Daddy, my dad just doesn't, he just doesn't want me to have any fun. My dad doesn't understand. No, I'm the one who doesn't understand. My dad understands way more than I do. I just didn't get what I wanted. So now I've got to come up with all these postulated reasons why my father might not have allowed me to go stay with Richard. Did I not believe strong enough? Am I not a good son? Does my dad not love me? You see where I'm going with this? And all the while, all it was was my dad was looking out for my best interest, and he knew things I didn't. That's exactly how simple it is, even with life and death. Listen to me now. Even with life and death, even when your 55-year-old sister, who was so sweet, Lenora was one of the most beautiful persons I've ever known in my life, not necessarily physically, but in her heart and her attitude she was she was almost like you wonder if god didn't send an angel down here you know she was just that sweet 
And she got sick at 51 years old. I remember the phone call. Roland, I need to talk to you. And she never talked to me like that. I could tell by the sound of her voice, something's not right. Now, my sister Marilyn, the middle sister, Lenore was the oldest. Marilyn's the middle, and I'm the baby. Marilyn called me when I was a youth pastor, many years before Lenore died. Marilyn said, Roland, I'm real upset. What's wrong? The doctors found two tumors in my abdomen about the size of eggs, and they're saying they're pretty sure it's cancer and a real bad cancer, and I'm just scared. Please, please pray for me. Well, I just kind of stopped everything, put all my appointments on hold, and back then I was a naive, idiotic youth pastor who just counseled people all day. I've learned better. But anyway, um, (coughs) I talked to my sister for two hours on the phone. And I built up her faith. I quoted every scripture I could think of. I prayed for her. I, I just about prayed a blister on my phone. That was back in the day when we had phones that had cords on them, you know. You had to push buttons to dial people. My sister went to the doctor the next day. He did exploratory surgery. She called me the next, the next couple of days later when she got out of it. And she said, Roland, I need to tell you something. And I said, okay. She said, the doctor did exploratory surgery. He went in there and he said, when I put my hand on the tumor's, they just fell off your abdominal wall and your intestinal tract into my hand and they were dead. You're cancer free. She's never had another tumor. That was 20, 25, almost 30 years ago. 1987, 30 years ago. Think about that. Yet my sister Lenora gets cancer. It never stops growing and she's dead in four years. Our job is not to second-guess God. Our job is not to reverse-engineer a postulated future, some fomented design of His agenda that we think we grasp. Our job is to trust God, pray the prayer of faith, and believe, and then let God be God. And listen now, this is the, this is the, the bow on top of the package. When God does stuff we don't like, we didn't ask Him to do, we ask Him to do the opposite, or He didn't do something we asked Him to do, or He said no, or wait, or, or we pray and it sounds and feels like there's nobody listening within a million miles of us, and God's not even listening to me, I don't feel God, I don't hear God, I don't know what's going on, God is quiet, God's been quiet for a long time, I pray and I feel like nothing's happened. That is when we need to stop thinking those childish, self-oriented thoughts. And we need to come back to the five words that govern our lives. What does the Bible say? The Bible says when we pray, He hears us. It does not say when, God, when you pray, God hears you and you will feel like that. That's what we want. That's not what it says. Sometimes we don't feel anything. And we don't need to. That's what faith is. Faith is way up here. Emotions are way over here and down here. Our trust in God has to be to the place where when God says no, we trust in His judgment. When God says wait, we're content to be patient in His timing. When God says yes, we don't become consumed and obsessed with what He gave us. We remember the giver and not just the gift. And when it seems like God is not there, our faith carries us through those lonely, dark times because we know, not feel, we know that God hears us when we pray.
temptation now, the pull of our flesh is, is this. It's the passing of time. What I've said to you tonight can be easily accomplished on a weekend or a month or a year. But it's this. On and on and on. Weeks, years, decades. A little woman who had the issue of blood, she prayed and waited for how long? Twelve years. Caleb was 40 years of age when he and Joshua spied out the promised land. But it was 45 years later before he got to go up to Hebron and claim the hill country as his own. 45 years. Half a lifetime. He was 85. And he didn't do anything wrong. That little baby, I prayed my brains out and fasted with no food for three weeks. And that little baby died. That little baby wasn't even old enough or, or aware enough to commit a sin. That baby hadn't done one thing wrong. And God could have healed her with a thought. God chose to take that baby home. I don't understand that. Here's the beauty of that. I don't have to. It's not my job to understand. It's not required of me that I comprehend the reasoning of God. It is paramount upon me that I trust him in it. These things are easy to say from this pulpit and in this environment. They are much more difficult to receive and put into practice when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I would love to stand up here and tell you that every time, every single time you pray the prayer of faith for healing, God's going to heal. Yes, sir. And we'll all shout and jump around and wave white hankies and get excited about that. Preach the place happy. I always tell you the truth. God answers in three ways. Yes, no, and wait. I love yes. I don't like no. I don't like wait. I love yes. We all do. But it is a short-sighted, self-centered, immature understanding of God when we demand that He answer prayers only with the desired outcome that we've presented as a plausible resolution. We must move beyond that into a realm of greater maturity, greater understanding. Uh, uh, David, in, uh, in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We've got to have that willing spirit. To let God be God and to be content with that and not live the rest of our lives. And listen to me, this is so important. I'm going to close with this. Nobody in this world really knows you. Nobody does. Not even your spouse. They don't really know all the secret machinations going up in here. Only you and God. Those little secret cubby holes and secret little safes we got buried in the soil works of our spirit and mind up here you got to make sure there's nothing in there that when you unlock that little safe and open it up, there's some foul spirit of distrust of God or some unanswered question that makes you want to do this or lapse back into emotional hyperbole. We've got to grow out of this. If I were standing in front of a guillotine, now listen to this, if I were standing in front of a guillotine, if that, if that was a guillotine, and the guy beside it said, all right, we're going to cut your head off. You've got one last thing you can say to the Christian people of this world. And every Christian in the whole world was standing out in a big field, and they had a huge PA system. You know what I would say is my last words before they cut my head off? 
I would say, please, in the name of Jesus, stop living by your emotions and start living by faith. Really. Now you can cut my head off. That's what I would say. Because in my experience, about 98% of every Christian I've ever met really doesn't understand what it means to walk by faith. They live their lives dominated, dictated to, and steered through life on a horizontal plane, only relating to other people and circumstances and living by their emotions. They never really get... I mean, they have moments when they do, but predominantly, they're just emotional beings relating horizontally to the whole world. They never really rise above that. And until we do, we're never going to reach our potential in God. Now, as I close, I want to tell you that you're going to someday in your life find a time when it seems that God is silent. There's going to be some time in your life when it's going to seem to you that God is not listening to your prayers or that he no longer cares or that he has abandoned you or that he just has said no when he really should have said yes. You're going to come to those days sooner or later. When you do, I ask you to remember this message. I ask you to think about the eternal perspective. Think about the wholeness and completeness and the balance of God's word. Think about not just demanding of God certain outcomes, but trusting Him in faith in the processes of life. And that we will be the kind of people who can pray the prayer of faith and be content and at peace, letting God be God. Will you all stand? Heavenly Father, as we close our study tonight, I pray that in these moments you have superseded by your Spirit and your Word anything that I might have tried to say in my own wisdom, that it is you who has been exalted here tonight, your principles, your Word, your life that you want us to live. I pray, O oh God, that you will use this message to equip us and prepare us for days to come. And I'm not prophesying negativity or bad happenings on anyone's life. I'm giving us another shield, sword, arrow, whatever euphemism and metaphor we wish to use, another piece of weaponry and equipment in our arsenal that will enable us to navigate the difficult days of our lives when we feel alone and you seem quiet. I pray, O oh Lord, for this person in Arkansas that I sat with and talked with, that you will heal them across these miles and across this space because it is my job not just, to, not just to share with them and teach them and help guide them through this time. It is my job, premier, to pray the prayer of faith. And I pray that prayer. And we anointed with oil, we laid our hands on this individual. And I pray right now, with the, with the faith of all these in this room, bound together, that you across the miles will touch her and heal her in the name of Jesus. And if you should decide to take her home, and that's not my job to pray, but if that is your, if that is your choice as, as God, I pray that you will give strength to her family. 
strength to her husband, strength to her loved ones. But I pray that you will embolden her faith and let her faith rise up to believe you for healing and let her remember the words of Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Let her trust, let her faith, let her passion, let her fervor for you, O God, not be diminished at all. Let her remember when Elisha was suffering from the sickness from which he died, he was still giving prophetic instructions to the king. Let her remember that when Paul was ensconced in the dungeon in the Mamertine prison just outside Rome, knowing, knowing that in a few days, burly soldiers were going to tie his hands behind his back, traipse him down a long hallway, push him to his knees, and bend him over on a chopping block, and with one swift blow of a sharp blade, his head was going to be severed from his body, knowing that. He sat with a quill and a candle and penned words that still guide our faith 2,000 years later. Let us never become weary in doing good. Let us never judge you wrongly. Let us always love you, always trust you, always know that no matter what seems to be the case, no matter how unfair we have perceived our lot in life, that you, O oh God, love us. You proved it at Calvary. You have our best interest at heart. We do live in a fallen world where sin brought sickness and death. And in the midst of all that, and the humanity of it and the, the swirling emotions and circumstances of it, give us the maturity and the insight, the prudence, the depth of thought, the soundness of understanding to be able to navigate ourselves to a place where our trust in you as our Father is greater than than any experience we go through. And I pray this, O oh Lord, and this is grown-up meat. I pray that all of us here tonight receive this and that it is transcendent in our lives during the darkest days we face. In the mighty name of Jesus, the strong, all-powerful, loving Son of God, amen and amen. Thank you so much.